There are some sounds that I don't hear very often. One of them is the sound of a rooster crowing. From my house in a subdivision, I hear dogs barking, I hear the school bus going down the street, I hear the occasional ambulance siren, a few other noises in the morning, but rarely do I hear a rooster crowing. Um, I probably have to go further out of town to hear that, somewhere out in farm country, somewhere not as crowded or busy as our subdivision, but roosters, you know, usually don't frequent populated areas. Everyone knows that. They're found on farms out in the country where they can sound forth uh, just before dawn and wake the sleepers with the good news that a day, new day has come. God made roosters for a reason to serve as trumpets of the morning, to signal that a new day has come, to rouse sleepers from their beds, to remind, you know, kids to get up, whatever. Peter, the Apostle Peter in our story today knew all about roosters. After all, Peter lived in a rural area called Galilee, and you uh, could not have lived there without getting used to the daily singing of the rooster chorus. He had heard roosters since the day he was born. The sound was as familiar to him as the sound of an alarm clock might be to us. The rooster's crow meant it's time to get up. The new day is beginning. Over the years, um, he had heard that sound a thousand times or more, but of all the times and all the roosters, he only remembered one time and one rooster and one sound. It happened one Friday morning in Jerusalem. The rooster crowed, and Peter never forgot it. As long as he lived, he never forgot it, and he never got tired of telling the story. In fact, he told the story so often that it was written down four different times by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the story itself was repeated over and over again by first-century, first-generation Christians. They never forgot it. They never got tired telling it. It became one of the most familiar and best-loved parts of the gospel story. And for 2,000 years, this story has been told and retold and sometimes embellished in vivid detail, but it has encouraged Christians everywhere. Wherever the story of Jesus' arrest is told, the story of Peter and the rooster is also told as well. And we love this story because we can understand it, because we can see ourselves in it. There are few Bible stories that speak to us as this one does. So I invite you to hear again today the words of John's gospel. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest. So he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, uh, you're, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. And meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, no, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? And again, Peter denied it. And immediately, a rooster crowed. Matthew Henry, who was a Bible scholar, some 
writing some 300 years ago, uh, divided the story into two parts. Part one, Peter's fall, and part two, Peter's getting up again. And we're going to follow that simple outline this morning as we look at the story, and as we do, thank God that although Peter fell, he did indeed get up again. So the first part of the story is Peter's fall. It's late on Thursday night in Jerusalem. Jesus had just been arrested. He had been taken to the house of the high priest. Most of the disciples were nowhere to be found. They had gone, they had scattered, they had drifted off in the darkness. They were too shocked and too angry by the actions of Judas to do anything else. When the crowd of soldiers led Jesus away, Peter decided to follow them. He had promised never to desert Jesus. And he wasn't going to start now. So in the confusion, it was easy to kind of tag along behind the crowd. No one seemed to notice him. Certainly no one recognized him as one of Jesus' top men. He followed the crowd to the house of the high priest. The house opened onto a courtyard which would only be entered by a gate near the alley. And by the time Peter got there, the soldiers had taken Jesus into the house to meet the high priest. And the crowd had partly dispersed. It was late. The major excitement was over for the time being. And some had gone home. Others were warming themselves by the fire in the courtyard. Now it was probably early April and the temperature was probably in the upper 40s. It was hard for Peter to tell exactly how many people were there, 50 maybe or more. There were soldiers milling around. There were servant girls running errands. Plus there were some hangers-on and some passers-by, which was exactly the category Peter fit into, who were waiting to see what would happen to this fellow Jesus. In order to understand what happens next, it helps us to remember that it's now sometime after midnight. And in the darkness, Peter comes to the gate and he waits to be admitted, and no one's there who he, uh, no one there seems to know him, or so he thinks, so it would be a perfectly safe thing for him to do, to slip into the courtyard. True, he's now in enemy territory, and it's in the middle of the night, but there's no reason for folks to suspect him. And armed with that thought, he brushes past the, the servant girl on his way to stand by the fire in the middle of the courtyard, and just as he was getting to the fire, the servant girl spoke up and she said, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? And those words hit Peter like an electric shock. Somehow she recognized him. How did she know who Peter was? No one really knows the answer. It really doesn't matter. It didn't matter that she didn't know his name. What mattered was somehow she had connected Peter with Jesus. And Peter had to think fast. And instinctively he muttered the oldest dodge in the world. No, I'm not with him. Peter figured, just play dumb. Act like you don't know what she's talking about. And it worked, or at least Peter thought it worked. But as he stood around the fire talking to the soldiers, he noticed two or three people looking at him closely, too closely, too carefully. A couple of them even nodded in his direction and whispered to each other. And minutes passed, and Peter turned to walk out of the courtyard. Things were getting a little dicey, so he was going to move toward the gate. And as he did, a second servant girl, a friend of the first, suddenly spoke up. You're not one of his disciples, are you? Peter tried to act calm, but he felt his heart beginning to pound in his chest. 
Quick, Peter, you got to say something. Think, man, think. Don't just stand there. So he said, no, I'm not. But when he said it this time, his face was flushed, and he could tell that the girl didn't believe him. Peter knew now that he was in real trouble. Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's in the enemy camp. He's warming himself around the enemy's fire. He, if he tries to leave now, he's going to arouse more suspicion. But if he stays, they might find out who he is. So more time passes with more looks and more whispers directed at him. And after about an hour, it appears that Jesus' interview with the high priest was about over. The guards were going to and from the house and the tempo in the courtyard was beginning to pick up and Peter breathed a sigh of relief. Maybe he could get out of here now after all. It was just at that moment that a man from the other side of the fire spoke up. He sounded more sure of himself and definitely more hostile than the servant girls. Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Peter looked up at him and he tried to play dumb. And this time it didn't work. Evidently this fellow had been with the crowd that arrested Jesus the night before. But worse yet, he was a relative of Malchus, the man whose ear Peter had impulsively cut off that night in the garden when he was with Jesus. So Peter was trapped and he knew it. And this fellow had seen him with Jesus, plus he was plenty ticked off about what Peter had done. And when a person is backed into a corner, what do we typically do? We do almost anything we can to save ourselves, and that is exactly what Peter did. He began to curse, and he began to swear, as one translation says. And he says, I don't even know him. Why don't you leave me alone? May God strike me dead if I've ever even heard of this man, Jesus. The words kind of just came tumbling out. Old words that were born of fear and exhaustion, words that Peter hadn't used since his days as a fisherman. And at that very instant, the, the words flew out of his mouth, the rooster began to crow. That's the story. But it leads to some questions. Chief among them being, what possessed Peter to deny Jesus? The answer is really not that difficult to find. Peter was scared. Peter was tired. That doesn't excuse his conduct, but it does make it understandable. And after all that had been happening, Peter finally seems to run out of strength. Now I want you to consider this story from Peter's point of view for a moment. Jesus' case appears to be hopeless. The chief priests had him at last. They would not let him go until he was dead. That much was clear. What point would there be in Peter sticking his neck out. Besides that, Peter's tired and lonely and, and he's cold and he's a bit disoriented. Plus there, and, and this is a big factor, he never expected to be questioned by a servant girl. Her question caught him totally off guard and he blurts out an answer almost without thinking, but once he denies Jesus, there's no turning back. He has to play out the story. And that's part of the irony in this story. Peter denies Christ to a servant, not to a high priest, not to a soldier, not to anyone in that cultural moment would have been an important person, but to one of the servants. Peter has said already before that he would deny, uh, or that he would de uh, never deny Jesus, that he would die for him, and just a couple of hours earlier, he's whacking off somebody's ear in trying to protect Jesus. Peter was not a coward. 
He knew the risk involved when he went into that courtyard of the high priest, and I wonder what would have happened if Peter had been brought himself before the high priest. We, you know, would he have said, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, and I'll follow my master you know, to the cross, or would, would he have denied Jesus even in the presence of the high priest? We're not sure. And then we might ask, what happened by the fire that night? For one thing, you know, he's really totally unprepared for the question. This servant caught him off guard, and he lies about knowing Jesus. And as we all know, one lie tends to lead to another. Alexander McLaren put it this way. He said, one sin makes many. The devil's hounds run in packs. What happened to Peter was no fluke. He set himself up with a a long string of bad decisions. And here are the seven great mistakes that I think Peter made that night. First, he talked when he should have been listening. At the Last Supper, just hours before, when Jesus said that all the disciples would desert him, Peter impulsively blurts out, even if everybody else deserts you, I never will leave you. And within six hours, Peter has come to regret those words. Secondly, he didn't appreciate his own, he didn't understand his own weakness. Third, he, he ignored Jesus' warning. Fourth, he follows Jesus at a distance when he maybe should have been at Jesus' elbow. In, in that case, following Jesus far off just got him in more trouble. Five, he warmed himself by the wrong fire. Peter had no business warming himself in the company of the enemy. And as one writer put it, if his faith had not already been frozen, he would not have needed to warm himself by that fire. By consorting with those who had arrested Jesus, Peter had placed himself in a position where he would almost certainly be exposed. Number six, he was unprepared when the attack came. And then last, he compounded that sin by first deceiving and then denying and finally swearing that he didn't know Jesus. See, by this time, it's an inevitable. Peter set himself up for a big fall, and when it came, it was a huge one. Remember the old saying, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive? It's interesting to note that Peter fooled only himself. The others never really believed him. They sensed he was lying. Something in his face, something in the tone of his voice gave him away. And so it was that Peter, who Jesus had called the rock, had crumbled at a critical moment. He had denied his Lord not only once, but three times. And it was a failure that he would remember for the rest of his life. But as we think about that, we can take heart, take to heart the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. Peter thought he was standing strong, but he was ready and ripe for a fall. That was Peter's fall. Then the second half of this story really gets better, and it gives us a lot of hope. And this is Peter's getting up. There are four steps in Peter's return to the Lord. First, the Gospels are unanimous on one point, and that is that the rooster crowed at the exact moment of Peter's third denial. As these foul words you know, vulgar words flew out of Peter's mouth. At that very instant, somewhere off in the distance, he hears the rooster crow. And the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered. One author put it this way, this hidden memory 
pulled the rope that rang the bell of Peter's conscience. Suddenly, in that moment, it all became clear. How rash he had been only six hours earlier. How cocky he had been. How confident in his own strength. How sure of his own abilities. The sound of the rooster meant, Peter, I warn you, this, was a, this is going to happen. And you didn't believe me. And Peter remembered. Secondly, Luke's account of the story contains one detail that the, all the others omit. And it says that when the rooster crowed, at that moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now this is the middle of the night. And it must have been just as the guards were taking Jesus from his interview with the high priest Caiaphas to his trial before the Sanhedrin, and evidently the guards were leading Jesus through the courtyard just as Peter was denying him for the third time. And in that tiny moment of time, Peter curses, the rooster crows, and Peter looks up and he sees Jesus staring straight at him. By this time, Jesus' face is black and blue. His eyes are almost swollen shut. His cheeks are bruised. He's covered with spit, traces of blood trickling down his lips. And even though it's the dead of night, Peter can see him perfectly in the firelight. And Jesus can see him. And Jesus doesn't say a word. He just looks at Peter, who has denied him for the third time. See, everything happened just as Jesus had predicted. And I'm, I'm thinking that Jesus' look must have been a convicting look, as if to say, you said you didn't know me, Peter, but look at me. Look at me, Peter. Do you not know me? And I think it was probably a compassionate look, as if to say, Peter, <clears throat> how weak you are. Now you know that without me you can do nothing. And I think it was probably a commissioning look. I think Jesus would have said, Peter, weep now, but remember your words and go straight out and go tell the other disciples. Thirdly, Matthew, Mark, Luke all stress that when the rooster crowed, Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. It was this memory more than anything else that brought Peter back to God. Not only had Peter fallen, he had fallen after a lot of boasting. He had happened, it had happened just as Jesus predicted. And those words, uh, spoken in love, had lodged themselves deep in the crevice of Peter's mind. So much had happened in those few hours that Peter had forgotten. But at the opportune moment, he remembered what Jesus had said. And finally, we are told that when he did remember, he wept bitterly. His tears were a sign of deep repentance. He realized at last what he had done and how far he had fallen and that his denials had hurt the Lord. Now we remember in the story that Judas wept also, but his tears led to suicide. Peter's tears led to repentance. You know, tears are good if they lead us to a new devotion to Jesus Christ, a new determination to serve him. We may weep, but if our hearts are not made tender and open before God, our tears really do no good. For Peter, his tears signaled that his heart was breaking because of his sin. The psalmist says, the sacrifice you desire, O God, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a repentant and broken heart. Now we can conclude from all of this that Peter was fundamentally loyal to Jesus. After all, he, was, he at least followed Jesus into the courtyard. Where are the, all the others? Gone. The rest of the disciples didn't even do that. In the words of William Barclay, uh, Peter fell into t- a temptation that could easily come, only come to a brave man. 
The person of courage always runs more risk than the person who seeks the place of calm and safety. Peter didn't handle himself well, but at least he was there. His failure was terrible, but at least he cared enough to try and follow Jesus. That doesn't excuse his sin, but it does help us to to sort of fit the bigger picture. In the end, it was not Peter's faith that failed, it was his courage. Jesus had told Peter, I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail, and his prayer was answered. Peter never lost his faith. In that moment of crisis, what he lost was his courage. And it's true that Peter was loud, he was profane, he was vulgar that night. It's true that also that he, underneath it all, he loved Jesus. And there was, in that courtyard, with all of his faults, keeping an eye on his Lord and Master, and at heart, Peter was a good man who just failed to live up to his best intentions. So what's the good news in this story for us? Well, I noticed two interesting things about the way Jesus treated Peter. First, Jesus never criticizes Peter. And he never gives up on Peter. Jesus knew about Peter's denial all along, before it even happened. He knew what Peter was going to do. He knew how he would react. He knew the kind of man that Peter would be afterward. And that's an important principle. You know, um, A bone that is broken often becomes stronger after it's healed. The same thing is true of our failures. God can take us where we are broken and make us stronger than we ever were before. And though we fall down and though sometimes our faces are covered with the grime of bitter defeat, by God's grace we can rise from our defeat and move on to victory. That's what happened to Peter. His guilt was now turned into grace. His shame was turned into sympathy. His failure was turned into faithfulness. And here's the proof. Peter did much more for Jesus Christ after after he fell than before. Before the fall, he was a loud, boisterous, unreliable guy. Afterward, he became one of the great preachers of the gospel. Before, he was a big talker. Afterward, He talked only about what Jesus could do for other people. He was the same man, but he was different. What he lost in his failure was his vanity and his pride and his self-confidence and his rash impulsiveness and his unreliability. And what he gained after his restoration was a new found humility, a new confidence in God, more courage, a new determination to serve Jesus and a willingness to use his experience to help other people. The things he lost, he never really needed, but the things he gained couldn't have come any other way. So in the same way, God redeems our mistakes. He removes the things that, have brought, that brought us down, and he replaces them with qualities that we've always really wanted. You see, there's so much in this story that should be an encouragement to us. It was not the real Peter who denied the Lord. It was the real Peter who followed him into the courtyard. It was not the real Peter who was the guy cursing and swearing. It was the real Peter who said uh, just a day or so earlier, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when God looks at you and me, he doesn't look at us and just see our faults and our failures. He sees beyond all of that to the loyalty and the faithfulness underneath. He sees our pain. He sees our tears, our desire to please him. And and even though some of that is faltering attempts to follow, God sees that and knows that. So 
Whom does this story apply to? Well, I think three scenarios. First of all, this story is for all of us who are feeling tempted, who feel sometimes the pool of circumstances conspiring to draw us away from God. And I encourage you today to take heart if that's you. If you feel weak and confused, know that Peter felt that way too. If you have ever felt discouraged in your life, know that Peter felt that discouragement. If you feel backed into a corner at times, know that Peter also did, and this is a story for us. Secondly, the story is for those of us who have fallen. Perhaps uh, you gave way under pressure this week, and you regret it. You're carrying around a load of guilt from some thoughtless words or deeds that were done in haste or spoken in haste. Maybe you even denied your Lord by keeping quiet at work when you should have spoken up. Perhaps you used some bad language this week, even if it was just spoken under your breath. Perhaps you've been where you ought not to have been this week. Perhaps you have found yourself in a relationship recently that you know is wrong. I just encourage you to take heart. Peter not only felt like you, but he also fell like you. And then thirdly, this story is for those who are coming back to God. Maybe you know all about weeping bitter tears, and you feel sometimes that God's far away, and it's like trudging across a desert all alone. You feel embarrassed. You feel humiliated by some of the things you've said and done, the mess you've gotten yourself into, but take heart. Peter felt that way. And there's no story in the Bible that gives us more hope, because if Peter can fail, we can all fail. If Peter can come back, any of us can come back. Let me just share one final point, and that is, where does this story come from in Scripture? How did it ever get into the Bible? Who told this story in the first place? And, you know, one of the conclusions is it could only have come from Peter. There was no one else there to tell all the details of the story of what happened. We wouldn't, uh, I doubt if we would have done that, because we tend to hide our mistakes, don't we? We try to make sure nobody finds out when we've made a mistake, but not Peter. He, he was restored by God, and he couldn't stop talking about what Jesus had done for him. And I think if Peter were here today, he might say something like this to us. If you think you've fallen short, if you feel like you've denied Jesus, look what happened to me. Don't despair. God still loves you. And he loves you so much that it doesn't matter what you've done. If God can forgive me, he can forgive anybody. Because he loves you, he always has, and he always will. And I think there's hope for us in that. The best of us, the worst of us, and all of us in between. If you've fallen, you can pick, get picked up again. God will do that for you. If you're broken, God will make you whole. If you have failed, God will make you useful again. If you've lost your courage, God will give it back to you. We need to take heart and believe the good news because what God did for Peter, he will do for every one of us. Thanks be to God.